I'm Captain America, former Avenger and Super Soldier, here to provide a content warning. You probably recognize me from movies and shows that have come out in recent years, but I'm not here for that. I'm here to tell you the following will contain spoilers, unique takes, and, much to my dismay, offensive language. So do be wary with the younger folks that may be around you while you're listening to The Invisible Show. I'm also here to remind you of something that is often time-swept under the rug. And that is, no matter your race, religion, ethnicity, or country of origin, we are all Americans. And I know you're not able to see me right now, but I am dressed like a Boy Scout. I know. But part of the reason why I wear this outfit is to remind everyone of this one common denominator, a symbol we should all unite under. I trust that the program will carry on to honor, truth, justice, and the American way. Enjoy the episode, and farewell. I'm trying to avoid a copyright claim. So I'm gonna fill in for the music. Oh goodness. Oh. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're all so kind. Thank you. Oh, goodness. Oh, wow. That is such a great feeling. Uh, welcome, everybody, to The Invisible Show. My name is Ryan, Ryan Serrano, Rye Dog, uh, Rye Doggy, Rye Doggy Style. It doesn't really matter. You can call me whatever you'd like. You can call me Big Daddy if you if you want that's your uh, your kink wow okay welcome uh, again and uh pl- if you haven't already please check us out on instagram on twitter at rs is number one it's uh, it's really good to be back in the studio after a month-long hiatus now Woo! uh dale to you too omar uh, anyway i wanted to also say thank you to Captain America for being able to make it out to the studio and record that monologue for us. Uh, the staff and I sincerely appreciate it. Although I think he stole that last line from Superman. I'm not entirely sure. But we have an awesome program lined up for today. We have fully scripted essay reviews of Invincible, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and a movie of my choosing. So uh, without further ado, let's get into it. Now. Falcon and the Winter Soldier is good and deserves praise for bringing divisive political commentary into the billion dollar franchise that is the MCU. But is it perfect? Are there deeper messages behind it? Is it just superficial? Remember, this is just my opinion, I'm not claiming to be factual, and always remember that all interpretations of cinema are subjective, so please don't come to my front door with a brick in your hand that has my name on it. Are we cool? Okay. But where do we even begin? This one was a giant doozy. Uh, um, I want to start by talking about Falcon. Uh, There was a word I found the other day to describe Anthony Mackie, who plays Sam Wilson, that I thought was very accurate. Some critics called him effervescent, meaning young, attractive, and enthusiastic. 
I think it's good to note how he was basically underutilized as an actor for the past seven years and was in the MCU for the sole purpose of serving Steve Rogers' narrative, which I'll touch on more later. So naturally, head writer Malcolm Spellman had multiple burdens to take on, similar to what WandaVision was tasked with, but with a lot more, uh, given the sensitive nature of the story's themes. This is a show that definitely tries to bridge the gap between ideologies, because the more people like it, the more money the studio ends up making. Spellman and his team had to build um, a compelling story, add more depth to characters who were only there to advance the plot of previous installments, and to do something that was technically unprecedented. Comic book stories in general do not shy away from political commentary. Uh, but this story in particular is especially sensitive for tackling themes of racism and, shockingly enough, something I'll explain later too, white fragility. I think it's important to note the MCU was established at just the right time. You see, our culture has tremendously evolved a long way from the MCU's debut year, which was 2008. Um, put it this way, if the character of Tony Stark were to be introduced this year, you could argue the franchise probably wouldn't gain enough traction with its popularity, because there'd be a lot of criticism against a movie that sympathizes with a playboy, military, industrialist billionaire. One might even suggest people are outgrowing movies that say, this world would be a better place if the billionaire chose to be benevolent and righteous. You see, there has been a lot of resentment toward the 1% in recent years, so I suspect audiences don't want them to have that power in the first place. Not in a fictional world that's so similar to our own. The appetite for superhero stories is constantly evolving, so if anything were to replicate the character of Tony Stark today, there would be a considerable amount of backlash or indifference to them. Gen Z. Urgh. So, the main thing I'm arguing here is that the MCU has been extremely fortunate in releasing these characters and stories at the right time. And man, this show couldn't have shown up at a more perfect time. The finale of the season dropped the same week Derek Chauvin's trial verdict was announced and months after Chadwick Boseman's death, right as society was yearning for a new, powerful, and proud black icon. And paradoxically, the character of Sam Wilson also had to grow in order to stand as a patriotic icon. Marvel grounded Sam and Bucky into reality by having them face real-life personal issues and confronting the consequences of their past choices. But I'll come back to that later, because I want to start by answering why Sam chose to abandon the S.H.I.E.L.D. at the beginning and, and what the S.H.I.E.L.D. really is. It's not just a shield, as you already know, it's a symbol. A symbol that has an arbitrary criteria to any given person as to who should wear it. And some have their respectively different opinions on what it takes to be worthy of carrying it. And a small minority of the population believes that it should automatically go to a white person. Or at least associate the symbol with whiteness and only whiteness. You have to also remember there's subtext in the dialogue that reveal deeper motivations as to why a person chooses to do something. For Sam, 
there was probably a, a mixture of feelings that affected his choice in the beginning. And I think those who are worthy often doubt whether or not they are able to live up to the virtue the symbol is supposed to represent. And of course, Sam found it was problematic to accept the shield given some might despise him for it, while others would lose respect for him. Something the character of Isaiah Bradley rightly points out, and something Bucky could never truly understand. At the beginning of the series, he found that no one was able to live up to Steve Rogers' legacy, so he decided to retire the mantle himself, thinking it was no use to succeed the original. Now, I don't want to be any more speculative than I have to be, but Sam's motivations at the beginning are pretty clear-cut, especially if you watch the entire show. But perhaps it is fair to suggest America's goodness died a long time ago before Steve Rogers returned from hibernation, and it's also fair to say that it never existed to begin with. The virtue of the shield is often looked upon as just an illusory symbol. Uh, the culture behind the shield, the flag it represents, is also what gives this story so many layers. The writing in the show, in my opinion, is well-crafted. It transmits a lot of the real-life discussions on nationalism and race into the dialogue of the script. It is an elongated six-part movie, but it was the perfect amount of time for the writers to balance the action with personal development from each of the characters who we previously never really got to know. Um, in film, characters are not actual people. They give off the illusion that they are, but they're not. Oftentimes, they are merely conduits for ideas. Sometimes they're there to create on-screen spectacles that involve stunts, blood, or gore. Uh, that was the same thing. Uh, or they're there just to serve the narrative for the main characters. But Spellman and... Others accomplish the task of making the two leads into believable human beings. And that's good for the MCU because they're going to be around for a while. Anthony Mackie even stated in the Assemble documentary that he was glad he got to know more about Sam Wilson. And the characters just resonate a lot more this time around. Especially when they're fearing consequences of their honesty and their sacrifices. Like when uh, Bucky finally had to tell Mr. Nakasima the truth about his son, the fact that he killed him, but he told him that in order to make peace with what he had done. And of course, there's Sam, who is not able to balance his responsibilities as a family man and as an international hero simultaneously. So overall, I'm glad they developed them in a way that felt natural while respecting what was already established. I wonder who they'll have him date in movies. I would say Captain Marvel, but both of those people are total opposite personalities and i'm referring to sam of course and they probably wouldn't be compatible but who knows let's talk about one theme i feel a lot of critics have glossed over and that is supremacy in the moment between sam wilson and baron zemo they mentioned how anyone who pursues the super soldier serum is inherently corrupt zemo put it perfectly the desire to become a superhuman cannot be separated from supremacist ideals. Anyone with that serum is inherently on that path. What is Zemo really saying here? He noted before that warped aspirations led to the Nazis and the Avengers, 
But obviously those two are different results and intentions with the same type of aspirations. Uh, Carly Morgenthau, who's played by Erin Kellyman, is paradoxical in her motives for working against government leaders, condemning their power while causing terrorist attacks to demonstrate her own power. So she is guilty of making power statements. And that leads me to think, are power statements inherently supremacist? Supremacy, by definition, is the state or condition of being superior to all others in authority, power, or status. It could be any one of those things. Uh, Therefore, asserting power statements and enforcing them with action that would naturally conflict with others is inherently supremacist and non-egalitarian, for that matter. Let me digress more and talk about political ideology for a moment. I realized something as I was writing this review, and what I'm about to say has already been proven by studies, and and that is that one's political ideologies are largely dependent on the person's uh, background and how comfortable they are. Uh, Just to give you a general idea, you're more likely to actively reinforce different beliefs towards groups uh, with internet algorithms and like-minded social circles if you've been fed with a silver spoon your whole life. And uh, the reason why I'm telling you this is because typically you have wealthy people who are negligent ascend into positions of power without fully knowing what it's like to suffer. Carly Morgenthau became radicalized because of powerful groups who made negligent decisions and was empowered by the serum to act against those forces. The interests of the few dictated inequality for the many after the snap and the blip. Uh, and of course, there was definitely a parallel between this fictional conflict and real-world refugee displacement, but uh, the show plays it safe for the most part. She pushed and, and fought for uh, this slogan, One World, One People, and it, it wasn't absolutely clear what she meant by it, but the show made her beliefs and goals purposefully vague in order to keep as many people on board. So yeah, the show definitely has a voice. It's not on par with Hobbes or Machiavelli, of course, but the approach to these topics does feel thoughtful and is warranted given the political climate we're in right now. The two characters who represent the competing interests of the government and the terrorist group are John Walker and Carly Morgenthau. Uh, But then there's Sam, who tries to do the right thing, understands that the issues are too complex for him to grasp and provide a foolproof solution for, but chooses to help in the way that he can. He grew up in the South, like you mentioned, and acquired world experience, which uh, I think enabled him to empathize with Carly and her struggles. He resembles the common person who does not overestimate their understanding of the world and all its complexities. And by the end, uh, Sam delivers a monologue where he tries to convince world leaders to simply listen to people that are struggling and to try harder. And I think that's the point. Nothing can ever be truly ideal. Perfection is unattainable with so many competing interests. But listening and striving towards fairness is always the point. Not a perfect soldier, but a good John Walker was a perfect soldier who tried to be a good man. He lives and visibly struggles with the mistakes of his past, but genuinely wants to be good and live up to the symbol of the shield. I like how Wyatt Russell portrayed him as this misguided, insecure little puppy the government took advantage of. I'm, I'm actually excited to see uh, what they do with this character in the future. I, and, and I get there were some people who couldn't stand him, but I personally love seeing flawed and 
unbalanced uh, people interacting off others who are trying to get their shit together with a level head. I also want to read an excerpt of this article who, that talks about him. It's it's titled "How John Walker Shows the Banality of White Supremacy," and it's by Matt Goldberg from Collider. So, of course, the excerpt was taken out of context, but I don't think anything around it really matters all that much. So I'm going to read it to you. Where Walker's white supremacy goes from passive, accepting the shield and his new title without question, to active is in how he views his mission. When Walker offers Sam the chance to be his new wingman, from Walker's perspective, it probably seems like a nice gesture and a way to keep Sam on his side. But from Sam's perspective, it's demeaning and belittling. The government gave Walker Captain America's shield for branding purposes, and so perhaps he, we shouldn't be surprised that Walker thinks surface imitation is all that's required. Steve Rogers had Sam as a wingman, so why wouldn't Sam also serve as Walker's wingman? But there's no respect for what Sam and Steve went through, for, or the friendship they developed. It's simply optics, and optics are a poor substitute for mutual respect, which requires sacrifice and trust. Walker's white supremacy hardens at the end of the episode when he once again offers to work with Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but they politely turn him down by pointing out that they have much more flexibility working independently. Walker accepts, but then menacingly tells them to stay out of his way. And this is a core tenet of white supremacy. Uh, my way or the highway. There's no room for compromise, and there certainly isn't room for humbling yourself and finding ways to show respect to people who aren't like you. Walker's white supremacy coasts on the beliefs that he earned what he has, and what he has cannot be questioned. I read the whole part that was relevant to the topic of white supremacy. Uh, I, I know I mentioned white fragility in the beginning, and a lot of Walker's behavior is fragile, but it really just depends how you interpret his motives. I, I believe there are many people who can act entitled in their positions of power and authority. So the critic may have jumped the gun. Here's what I know. Yes, he does symbolize white supremacy in a way, but I don't really think it was the character's fault. You know, the person made these remarks right after he watched John Walker's debut episode and didn't really care to watch the rest of the show before writing this. Uh, you could easily argue John Walker acted like that because he felt insecure about his new role, had an incompetent understanding of leadership, and lacked maturity overall. A person of color could have acted that way too if he was in Walker's position. But I do agree with how he symbolizes white supremacy, and as far as that goes, uh, Walker's intentions and deep interpersonal thoughts on race don't really matter for the larger point being made here. So, what was the point of all this? What was the point of this whole show? They will never let a black man be Captain America. And even if they did, no self-respecting black man would ever want to be. Forgotten Black Tragedies, Part 1, Rosewood Massacre, 
The small town of Rosewood, Florida was established in 1890, but in the early 1900s, it was a predominantly black community. It had its own economy and even its own sports team. On January 1st, 1923, a 22-year-old white woman claimed that a black man brutally beat her. Her husband gathered an angry mob, including 500 members of the local KKK chapters to hunt down these men. These men entered the town with one motivation, to kill black men. They gunned down the Carrier family, a black family that was allegedly hiding the suspect. That night, they returned to the town and then burned the entire town, leaving only two buildings standing. The death toll was anywhere between 56 and 126 black people. The town of Rosewood has never been rebuilt. Back in 2019, the city of Palo Alto approved a multi-million dollar project that would reform one of the most dangerous stretches of road in the Bay Area, Middlefield Road. Three years later, and the project has seen success, with the city implementing new bike lanes and crosswalks to protect its residents. This is what Middlefield looks like now. Palo Alto also happens to be one of the most Caucasian cities in the Bay Area, with 59% of its residents being white. Only 6% of its residents are Hispanic. But a 10-minute drive takes you to Middlefield North, located in Redwood City, an area that's 73% Hispanic and only 15% white. Back in 2013, the city of Redwood City approved a $12.5 million restoration program, but as of yet, we've seen little to no change. Crosswalks here are faded and hard to see, especially at night, where pedestrians often fear for their lives. There are no bike lanes, because who cares if a brown kid gets run over while riding his bike? These are two out of thousands of injustices people of color consistently have to face everywhere. The purpose of sharing these videos was to showcase how the hurting and barriers in our society are still there and shouldn't be forgotten or ignored. And it's one of the many reasons why so many people feel conflicted about putting America on a pedestal. Sam Wilson chose to believe in the symbol, even after everything he's learned about Isaiah Bradley, who was obviously metaphorical for systemic racism at large. And after witnessing the loss and hopelessness the world seemed to be in, he knew he couldn't just let the shield be. Sam realized his people had suffered for too long for him to just quit. Walker and Bucky, nor anyone else could ever be compassionate toward labeled terrorists like Carly the same way Sam could. Neither Bucky or Walker could ever understand what it's like to be a member of a group that is oppressed the same way Sam could. And despite all of the country's negative qualities, he embraced its redeeming ones. But the same qualities a lot of people of color don't see because of their various setbacks. And regardless of all of it, I still feel empty. In the Marvel Assemble documentary for the series, one of the producers, Zoe Nagelhout, claimed that one aspect of comic books is that they assume a mantle has to exist, but when you translate it over to live action, you have to answer why. And I don't think they gave a very compelling reason for it. We all know why Sam picked it up at the end, but did his character come to find America is actually redeemable? Could underprivileged children of color in the U.S. trust in something like patriotism when there are so many systematic barriers in place to impede them from success? Is Sam wearing the symbol in vain? And how do they know if children will ever be able to accept something as paradoxical as a black Captain America in the long run? You could say 
the character took a leap of faith and obviously the studio is going back to provide more reasons why Sam's choice at the end of this show was justified but we have yet to see what the legacy of Sam Wilson will be this will ultimately affect millions of children and popular culture as a whole in a positive way for the most part and I am happy for him and the success of Marvel but the way this show is so intertwined with our culture, how it is massively influential across the globe, and what the implications of this show are should not be ignored. So all, that was my review of the show. I hope you all enjoyed actually watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier just as much as I did. I'm a huge Marvel guy, so, you know, I really love the shit out of it. And I hope you listened to this this review all the way through and found it to be entertaining at the least um i'll also make sure to leave the tiktok video links from the creators i borrowed without permission from in the podcast description uh but it is snack time so i'll be right back so we can talk about some invincible hi doggy Hey, Steffi. Are you out of your damn mind? I just heard you doing a review for Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So that made you decide to throw water at me? I didn't hear you talking about women empowerment or any woman of color while you were there. What the hell are you talking about? Carly Morgenthau was literally the main antagonist of the show. She is a person of color. She was a ginger. Um, are you going back in there to talk about shows or movies that do talk about women and the struggles in the patriarchy? Oh, I don't know where that came from, but I'm going to go in there to talk about a superhero show and a movie of my choosing. Stop! Review this one before you talk about your other dumb show. I care a lot, but this one has already been out for months and it, it came out December. Nobody, eesh! Fun! Take it easy. All right. I'll review it. Damn it, Stephanie. Ugh. All right. Here we go. I Care A Lot was written and directed by Jay Blakeson, who is credited for other lesser-known independent feature films. The movie stars Rosamund Park from Gone Girl and Peter Dinklage from Game of Thrones. Uh, I'm going to talk about what I thought and felt as well as some of the themes in it. I, I do recommend watching the film before you listen to my critique. And I also want to let everyone know that this isn't a movie that I recommend to all of you. And definitely, it's definitely not something you would normally enjoy unless you're critically thinking about the film's message as you're watching. To reaffirm what I just said... It's got an audience score of 35% and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 79. Watch it so you could have some context for what I'm about to tell you, if you want. But I'm just putting it out there that it's not going to make you feel good at all. And just as a reminder, this will contain spoilers. I'll read you the uh, movie info from Rotten Tomatoes. Poised with shark-like self-assurance, Marla Grayson is a professional court-appointed guardian for dozens of elderly wards whose assets she seizes and cunningly bilks through dubious but legal means. It's a well-oiled racket that Marla and her business partner and lover, Fran, uh, 
Elisa Gonzalez, uh, used with brutal efficiency on their latest cherry, Jennifer Peterson, Peterson, uh, two-time Academy Award winner Diane Wiest. I don't think I pronounced that right. Uh, a wealthy retiree uh, with no living heirs or family, but when their uh, Mark turns out to have an equally shady secret of her own and connections to a volatile gangster, that's Peter Dinklage, Marla is forced to level up in a game only predators can play, one that's neither fair nor square. Let me just be honest, I hated Marla Grayson at the beginning. I didn't care for her character at all, and right at the opening scene, she has this monologue on how rich people invented the idea of fairness and how playing by the rules is designed to keep poor people at the bottom of the economic hierarchy, and how each person is either a predator or prey, which is a sentiment rooted in truth, but in no way does it justify her exploitative occupation as a state-appointed guardian. She takes advantage of the elderly, okay? That, that much is clear. Uh, and I'm not sure if audiences would sympathize with this character character if Marla was a charming businessman. But what's definitely irking about her is how she does it. In the opening scene, she manages to manipulate the judge into giving her full authority over an old woman's livelihood as her guardian over the son who contested the state's will in court. You know, so they're they're there. Um What's most disturbing about this is the way she's able to fiddle with the judge's emotions by pretending to have sympathy for the son, while simultaneously presenting an infallible argument as to why she's the best option for the mother. But after the court adjourns and grants Marla permanent custody over the mom, the son immediately reacts by confronting Marla outside and insults her with vile slurs, saying that he hopes she gets raped, murdered, calls her a fucking fucker, yes, I said that right, and subsequently spits on her. She remains relatively calm and states, Does it sting more because I'm a woman? That you got so soundly beaten with by someone with a vagina? And what I liked about this scene is that she was able to reduce him to nothing more than a man-child with infantile aggression. There are other moments where she has, or where she mentions that she's often threatened and harassed by other men when she chooses not to concede to their demands. When the film gives us those uh, tidbits of information, I feel as though it elicits the audience into having a little more sympathy for her, but I don't think anything was able to fully override the pure disdain they held for her because of the fact that she was so cruel and unjust toward the elderly um, in a system that was ripe for exploitation, as another critic put it. My sentences are too long. Anyway, uh, I'm speaking from my own experience, of course, but I'm pretty sure others felt this way too. And I will say that I think the film is eye-opening for showcasing predatory behavior toward women in white-collar jobs. But yeah, for three-quarters of the movie, I was aching to see her get brought to justice because I kept thinking she was way too arrogant for her own good for three-quarters of the movie before the all-is-lost moment happened, which was a turning point for how I viewed this film, uh, which I'll talk about more in a second, of course. I was thinking, okay, the only way 
they could resolve for her shittiness is if her character is brought to justice by either execution as punishment or having her go through a change of heart and making up for what she's done. This movie made me actually root for the antagonist. I was rooting for him to retrieve his mom out of the facility she was put in. They tried to make him into this tough badass that instills fear into his subordinates, but he's just sort of this generic bad guy that's like a mobster or whatever. But Peter Dinklage is always a pleasure to see on screen, so it didn't really bother me. Alright, so now I'm going to talk about the real spoilers by, you know, going into the third act, yada yada yada. You, You already know, but check it out, you know. Um, Because I do recommend it for anybody that wants to turn their brain on and eat popcorn. There's your warning. So, even after she was threatened by the mobster's lawyer, choked, and saw one of her associates die on live television, she persisted in keeping that woman in the nursing home because she's strong-willed, and it turned out to be her only leverage. She was totally fearless against every threat she faced, which was a testament of her strength, yes, but... uh, Well... There was a show I watched recently where a character had stated, and I'm going to paraphrase this, strength is dissimilar to power. Yearning for power, acting in the name of it, is analogous for a parasite that can never be satisfied, and that it inherently weakens the utilities of strength. The sentiment does kind of apply here, where she does step into the main conflict arrogantly and suffers for it um, for the sole purpose of gaining more wealth. But as soon as she realizes what she's up against, she comes back and successfully traps her opponent into granting her uh, a large monetary award. And if you've seen the ending, um, you know that those two work together despite hating each other as enemies. Uh, So they put their differences aside to combine their wits and assets so they could conquer together. So she does get what she yearns for, uh, but doesn't really fundamentally change at all. Uh, It's neat thinking about what the parasite is exactly and why it's there. Like I had these questions in my head. Um, Was there something that traumatized her? They hinted she has no relationship with her mother, which is indicative of why she holds no sympathy for the people she targets, but there's still a lot of ambiguity. Did poverty make her lust for power and wealth? I would assume. Did she have extremely negative experiences with men early on in her life? That's the thing. Maybe she doesn't hate them, but just recognizes them for what they are, objectively. And I'm presuming she has no uh, sexual attraction for the opposite sex. I'm, I, I gotta wonder about these things. So many questions I think the writer himself probably didn't even bother to answer. But let's backtrack a little bit. Even at the brink of death, when Dinklage's character stated he wanted to kill her, she accepted it as a possibility. A true stoic at heart, I think. When she finally escapes her near-death experience, she sets out to find her wife. And when she finally finds Fran lying on the floor, she expresses fear for the first time. The look on her face, that vulnerability, the chink in the armor. Someone who does ultimately hold redeeming qualities because we know, at that moment, we learn that she's capable of love like us, but chooses not to express it toward her prey or her business associate for that matter. She's hardened herself to cope with any and all possibilities because of the greed-driven profession she was in. She wouldn't have achieved her goal by the end of the movie if she feared death or feared losing her business. 
By the end of the film, she learns nothing, but we find out the character doesn't fundamentally change with the situation or because of the situation, but uses the situation to change the status quo for herself and for her business by widening it into onto a corporate nationwide scale with the help of Dinklage's character. Stories could go either way. They either change the situation or themselves. But um, eventually she's shot and killed by the guy that spit on her face in the opening five minutes. So in the end, she is brought to justice, but I think I would have wanted for her to be arrested and serve life in jail rather than be assassinated. Um, I think you should watch it and evaluate the claims on your own. And um, you're probably thinking, well, uh, Daddy, um, what's uh, what's the score? Um, I'd give it a B. Above average, but nothing monumental. Okay, you stuck around because you want to know my thoughts about Invincible. Well, let me tell you, it's a show worth watching. Some people won't be interested in it just because it's not DC or Marvel, but that's the exact reason why you should see it. It bases a lot of its superheroes off those two franchises, but the storytelling perspective is unique and more nuanced than people are used to seeing. Mark Grayson, a.k.a. Invincible himself, is definitely a mixture of Spider-Man and Nightwing, a teenager who's got a lot on their plate, but who's always trying to do the right thing in the name of justice, like Cap was saying in the beginning. While Omni-Man is obviously based off Superman, except he doesn't have X-ray vision or his goodwill toward humanity for that matter. The show definitely takes cliches and flips them on their head. I could name a whole slew of them, but I'm going to give you one example. Uh, I thought the show would take the lighter-skinned superheroine Adam Eve and make her Mark's main love interest. But to my surprise, the writers chose a person of color with an unconventional hairstyle and made her his girlfriend for the show. I think the writers intentionally threw us off since Eve did slightly resemble Mary Jane because, as I've stated before, Invincible is a lot like Spider-Man. Hell, they were even attracted to one another. They hinted that they were attracted to each other until other romantic interests got in the way of them taking it any further. A critic by the name of Cosmonaut Marcus commented that the show focuses on interpersonal relationships more than Amazon Prime's other superhero show, The Boys, which he also claimed mainly focuses on politics. This is what I have to say about that. There is a, a very strong philosophical conflict in this show, and we're going to talk about that at the very end of this review. And the show does have political commentary like most other shows that are out there. But yeah, most of the focus is on Mark Grayson balancing all of his responsibilities, which as a 22-year-old dude managing a lot of shit at once... I found pretty relatable. The show felt reminiscent of old cartoons like The Spectacular Spider-Man, Danny Phantom, and American Dragon, just to name a few, but with that twisted adult edge to it. So the show caters to that nostalgia in a way. Uh, plus, it had something that the superhero genre as a whole, in my opinion, has been deprived of for years. And that is campy supervillains wrapped in delusions of grandeur. In other words, pure fun. You get a whole variety of them. 
aliens from different planets, mad scientists, super-powered mob bosses, and evil genius college students. Uh, there is uh, this is where the political commentary chimes in. You know, without getting into specifics, some of them have been wokeified or at least entail a woke message to their storylines, um, which is good. For example. Uh, the mad scientist that Invincible fights actually states he earned his PhD in women's studies and the both of them, with the inclusion of Adam Eve, have dialogue off that. Another villain was motivated by his family to ensure their financial security in a racially disparate economy, so the show as a whole does not shy away from those topics as it should. Let's talk about the star-studded cast. It's got Steven Yoon from The Walking Dead, the legend J.K. Simmons, the formidable and gracious Deborah Chow from Grey's Anatomy, Gillian Jacobs from Community, uh, Zazie Beetz, who you may know from Deadpool, uh, Zachary Quinto from Star Trek, and the legendary, the, the most fabulous Mark Hamill, just to name a few. There was real fucking talent behind the voices, especially Steven Yeun, who has been over underrated as an actor for years. Um, he brings so much heart and emotion to his performance, and I followed him since 2012. I saw his performance in The Walking Dead multiple times, so I always knew how he was physically emoting with the voice acting on set. Um, I love that he's trending and getting more recognition for his work. I think the primary reason why he was able to get this role was because of his connection to Robert Kirkman, who, as you may know already, is the creator of this show that was originally a comic book um, and The Walking Dead. You want to die for this planet? Fine! What's 17 more years? I can always start again. Make another kid. This was the most viral moment of the whole show, and I saw it right before I got the chance to actually start it myself. Uh, the central conflict that is in their fight and in this moment is probably the most impressive feat of this show. You see, stories like this leave questions in our head to explore. There's this line where Omni-Man states, human lives are so short and meaningless, and Invincible asks if his mom's life was meaningless. Omni-Man responds, in the grand scheme of things, yes. If we evaluate that claim for what it is, all of our lives are meaningless, including Omni-Man's, relatively speaking. And what I'm about to say could give you some existential anxiety, so you might want to stop the episode right here. On the surface level, we work, produce, consume, and shift to maximize our happiness. We live to find the work we are most suited for, whether it's producing, building, inventing, or ruling. Some are on the pathway of moderating themselves in order to reach self-actualization, while others may be living on varying degrees of hedonism. Music and arts are the things we live for, but it's only entertainment. It's only there to kill time. Whether it's admiring the beautiful qualities of the Mona Lisa or playing Fortnite for 12 hours, it doesn't make a difference. The whole point is to live, and yes, we find things we enjoy for work and hobbies, but is there something more than just living? We explore to expand, kill, and conquer land, uh, and, and to ultimately reproduce, but is that all? Is there something more than merely creating and reproducing? 
Admiring beautiful qualities in things like music and art is inherently meaningless. There's no point to it but to please ourselves. The whole purpose of politics is to discuss how we share resources and treat each other, but there's nothing beyond that. There's nothing beyond life. Our purpose in life is to reproduce, survive, and to maximize the quality of both, but nothing more. Everything relates to it, and nothing goes beyond it. We pray to live eternally and attain the divine pleasures, but it's nothing that we can be sure of. We don't know if God is out there, not truly, um, and we defer the knowledge to faith. Everything fades, and it doesn't matter who's president now. Um, they'll probably be forgotten in a million years. We all live for a small, fleeting existence. There's nothing more to it than that. And so, in a sense, Omni-Man had a point. Well, all that was a dark ending to this episode. And I know, I scared, I scared you all a little bit. But I hope you enjoyed listening. And be sure to stick around for RAS number 11 when it comes out. I'd surely love to talk about these subjects with guests on the show, and if you're interested in joining me, please feel free to reach out on Instagram, and we can try and find a way to squeeze you into the program. But be sure to follow the page on Spotify and to follow us on social media at RISIS1, and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care, and bye-bye.